Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world, and we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Jake, once more into the breach, my friend. Here we go, back into our lectionary groove. This is the third Sunday of Advent coming up on us in the third episode of Same Old Song. And by the way, thanks for uh, the feedback that lots of listeners have given us. And we're thrilled that anyone is listening and we're overwhelmed at how many of you are listening. And we got some great suggestions, which we are going to take note of. And some of them we will be incorporating this very week. You ask, we deliver. That's how it goes here on Same Old Song. I do want to preface that we're only going to be... uh... Uh, taking a few suggestions. No, I'm just kidding. I would do whatever whatever it takes for people to listen. For $20, your suggestion <laughs> goes right to the top, front of the line. That's right. Absolutely. Well, here we are, and it is the third Sunday of Advent, and everybody's getting ready to think about their sermons, or maybe you just like a little devotional material to uh, see you through the week. Uh, Scott Jones and I deliver. Um, I'm Jacob Smith, and I'm the rector of Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church here in Manhattan, and uh, this Sunday is Gallaudet Sunday, and it is a Sunday where the theme is all about joy, and we demonstrate that joy by light a pink candle. Why not? Why the heck not? I mean, that's what I always say about candles and these sorts of things. The the what is the third? What do the thirty nine articles say? That traditions of men, if they're not unbiblical, we should just do them. Why not? We yeah, should, absolutely. We should go along to get along. No Puritan, you know, weird. Uh, if the Bible doesn't command it, we shouldn't do it. Feedback from me. You know, it's funny. One time, uh, like. F- Three years ago, I was at a church, and the uh, Advent wreath was made out of pine needles, and uh, it was uh, the third Sunday of Advent, and they had these really low candles, and um, on the third Sunday of Advent, they lit the wreath, but the first Sunday of Advent candle, something happened, but the rest of the wreath caught fire in the middle of the sermon, and because it was dry pine needles, that like it was pine that made up the, uh, the wreath that had dried up, it just caught like a flame, and... Uh, and it was a real mess. I, I have a friend who pastors a Presbyterian church in Mendham, New Jersey, and they call it Hilltop Church because the sanctuary is up on a hill. That sanctuary has burned down three times. <laughs> like one of the times it was like in the 19th century or 18th century, like early 19th. And the thing with the wheels, with the water sort of, you know, mechanism that they would fight the fire with, it was so icy. It kept sliding down. They still do candlelight service on Christmas Eve. I would not let a candle within a hundred yards of that sanctuary. Those people are <laughs> literally playing with fire. That's amazing. Well, uh, we uh, come to our first reading uh, 
on the third Sunday of Advent from the Old Testament, which is Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. And uh, this is a very powerful uh, passage, which is very reflective of the day, uh, reflective of the idea of joy. But um, it's only understood in light of Isaiah 34, where you see and hear about God's judgment and his wrath, because as we know, Judah had begun to play with fire and had begun to take on other gods. And, uh, and so we hear in Isaiah 34, and in order to really, I think, especially if you're just preaching the text of Isaiah, in order to get it across well to your listeners, you have to let them in on Isaiah 34, which is just a brutal, brutal chapter where you have... Um, well, God is described as a judge, and uh, and the fact is is that we don't like to talk about God that way. We have no right not to talk about him that way, but um, Isaiah 34 is a very powerful, powerful passage where God is talked about as a judge, and uh, there are words in here like, their slain shall be cast out, and uh, the stench of their corpses shall rise, and uh, upon the people I have devoted destruction. The Lord has a sword, and it is satiated with blood. This is, uh, I mean, I, God basically in Isaiah 34 is described as Conan the, the barbarian, and uh, this, um, and rightly so, and uh, this moves us into a clear understanding of what Isaiah 35 is all about. If you want to preach law and gospel, you have to preach Isaiah 34, hit on that first, and then you can come into Isaiah 35. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, Doug Bratt over at the Center for Excellence in Preaching, which I want to recommend to everybody. It's a great resource at a Calvin Seminary. Doug Bratt, who I think is an Old Testament scholar, he says this on the given lection. He says, with the words that this text shouldn't be here, my colleague Barbara Lundblad begins a thoughtful presentation on Isaiah 35. After all, as she points out, it's not just that this text doesn't address anyone by name. It's also that it almost immediately follows a poem that's full of images of creational disaster. Mm. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles, and brambles, her stronghold, Isaiah 34. Into that promise of environmental devastation, Isaiah says, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burn, burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Lundblad notes, Isaiah dares to speak a word out of place, a word that refuses to wait until things improve. Mm. Walter Brueggemann says, Something similar when he points out Israel's doxologies are characteristically against the data. Oh, that's amazing. You know, if you've ever been to the desert, and I grew up in the southwest corner of Arizona, uh, man, it, uh, it, it looks like Mars for the most part. But, uh, you know, every once in a while, like once every seven years, you have these like heavy rains that cause the desert literally to bloom in uh, the middle of the spring. I mean, everything turns green for a brief moment. And I can imagine like this kind of illustration making a lot of sense to those people. However, it comes as a promise because Babylon is right at the door. You know, um, Babylon is coming to knock these people down. And um, But if you look, you know, there's a bloom there. There's a promise of beauty in the midst of real ashes. And it says, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. This isn't something that they're going to produce on their own. This is something that's going to be given to them, all gift. And that is uh, really the power of the gospel, is that it's given to us all gift, 
um, any sort of beauty, any sort of glory comes from above. Yeah, and I think what you're saying about God as divine judge, which again makes people uncomfortable, this is, I think we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but this is almost, you know, this this kind of phrase that you hear in a lot of church circles today that is shorthand for the gospel, that, that you're more sinful than you you could have ever, than you ever thought, and yet more love than you could have imagined. And so it's not until you have the honest inventory of the fact that we're not just in a mess, but we're dead, yeah. that the good news of resurrection comes, that you need, you don't need an out of place word if you're sort of papering over the nature of the situation. But when we realize that our condition is, is one, you know, God doesn't save the world from its death, but in its death. Yeah, uh, that's then, right. Then we need then we need the doxological courage to talk about imaginative grace. You know, it's very powerful, and uh, the idea here too. You know, especially on a Sunday about joy. So often in our culture and our society, we joy and happiness are kind of used intermittently. However, uh, you know, from a Christian and a biblical understanding, uh, you know, we teach that happiness and joy are two separate things. Happiness is based on conditions, and joy actually is something that's produced within us. It's a fruit of the gospel that comes from hearing a promise. And in this chapter, Isaiah gives the people of Israel a promise, the people of Judah a promise. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy, for water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You know, it's this word outside of us that actually opens our eyes to what actually God is doing. It's this word of the gospel that opens our ears to hear what God's doing on our behalf in the gospel. And it um, really, um, it's this word outside of us that causes us to get up on our feet in the midst of despair and to uh, preach and sing for joy uh, because there has been a declaration about us that is unchangeable, even in the midst of our surrounding circumstances. And I think that's why the prophet then goes on to talk about a highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. You know, this ultimately, I think as we both would agree, finds its fulfillment in the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. That is Jesus, and he is the one who makes us clean to travel on it, and he is the one uh, who ransoms us. And uh, someday, very soon, we, the redeemed, shall come to Zion singing, we're going to see our King. Let's go on to uh, James. Who James. Everybody's favorite book. What did Luther say about James? <laughs> the Epistle of Gold. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I like, I oftentimes refer to James as an epistle of law. It's kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. And, um, and uh, when you uh, delve into James, um, well, hermeneutically, first of all, you need to, we need to, I think, remember, and tell me what you think about this. I think hermeneutically, we always need to remember that we read James through uh, St. Paul, not St. Paul through James. All right. No? I like it. I like it. <laughs> you like it? 
Good. I like it. Good. Well, they, you know, James eventually agreed with St. Paul at the Council of Jerusalem in the book of Acts. So that's just what I've always thought. Yeah. I also, I also think it's just in general, like good theological practice to know what your canon within a canon is. Sure. Absolutely. Like, because nobody, people talk about like, well, we teach plenary inspiration, which means everything is equally inspired, which I mean, most Orthodox Christians would assent to that, but no one practices plenary inspiration. Mm-hmm. Nobody preaches as much from Leviticus as they do from Proverbs, as they do from Romans, as they do from the Gospel of John. So I do. I think, I think, well, I mean, other than you, I mean, when I say no one, of course, present company excluded. I think that there's two ways to have a canon within a canon. The way when you acknowledge it and, and, and know where your biases are and the way where you don't yeah. <laughs> just kind of That's do it really anyway. Good. So, so it's important to realize wh- how, what text you interpret in light of other texts. Because also, I think you'll be more generous to other Christians, mm. if like, because you'll realize, hey, I might disagree with them, but you know, I realize that they're trying to make sense of the, the whole picture of the Bible the best they can, and even if I don't agree with their judgments on it, I can be patient with them, mm. as James calls us to be patient. That's how right. you like that. I call that full circle, y'all. <laughs> That's very good. I really think that uh, uh, this particular part of the epistle of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, is essentially the bumper sticker of what Advent is all about. You know, as we wait in this season of already and not yet, you know, sometimes I, I look around and I wonder, you know, is God coming back? And every preacher has people in their parish that, especially during this time, as we approach uh, Christmas and um, for most people, even though we're in Advent, Christmas has already begun, and they're dealing and coming to the grips with the fact that maybe, you know... Yeah, some people even do lessons and carols, I know, <laughs> like touring Advent, early Advent. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who does it, but I've heard those people do that, and although I think it's completely offensive to all things holy and godly. Well, yeah. I have patience with people that do things Well, like you know, if, well, and I appreciate that because when you've been doing it for 128 years, that's just one sacred cow you're not going to touch. And so... Um, There's no sacred cow I can't make a Big Mac <laughs> out of, baby. So, but this ultimately is, uh, you know, we need our, our hearts strengthened. And, uh, and indeed, the coming of the Lord is near. And uh, that is the job of the preacher is to assure them that in the midst of our groveling, uh, we have one who stands at the door, and um, and we're called to remember the message of the prophets, and that is that uh, you will be saved. Amen to that, brother. And, you know, this notion of patience, I think for those of you who are preaching in context, and I think more and more all of North America, to some degree, becomes, it, it, there's at least pox of this context, but I'm sure, Jake, is someone like in Manhattan or you know, here I'm in Metro Philadelphia. Things like atheism and real honest-to-goodness skepticism are so prevalent. And I want to recommend a, an author named Thomas Halick, who was actually mm. a guy that is a Czech guy who, who was a psychotherapist who trained as a Catholic priest behind the Iron Curtain under communism, and now still is in Czechoslovakia. And he has two books, one called Night of the Confessor, and the other is called Patience with God. Mm. And in Patience with God, he, he talks about the fact that atheists are not wrong, but they're, it's more an issue of impatience. They want to resolve doubt instead of enduring mm. it. And Halleck actually thinks we can learn something from their insistence that the natural world doesn't point to God or to any necessary meaning, you know, that there's something correct in that nature is red in tooth and claw. Their experience of God's absence, he thinks, is a truthful experience that believers often also share. And faith is not a denial of all this, he asserts, but it's an impatient endurance of the ambiguity of the world and the experience of divine absence. And in the epigraph to the book, which is, quote, 
by Adele Best of Ross, who I don't know who that is, but Best of Ross says, patience with others is love. Hmm. Patience with self is hope and patience with God is faith. And in a review of this book on Ben Meyer's Faith and Theology blog, I think he's an Australian, he says, in contrast, one of the things he likes about the book is, in contrast to the overblown rhetoric of so many Christian apologists, with their drastic naivete about the ambivalence of the natural world and the intractable difficulties of believing, Halleck's account strikes me as a sensitive and realistic articulation of the difference faith makes. Mm. The best thing about his book, again, in contrast to the usual apologetics, is that it's actually a Christian response to atheism. Surely anything a Christian says to an atheist ought to arise not from an invincible commitment to being right, but from an understanding of the kindness of God, an awareness that there is room in God's family even for those who doubt, those for whom the word God cannot easily be deciphered from the dark hieroglyphics of the world. That is, that is incredible, and that is an awesome illustration. And I think it really ties into James right here in his last statement as an example of suffering and patience. Beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, uh, the truth is, is that both Christians and atheists suffer. And I think oftentimes, sometimes kind of blind apologetics or arrogant apologetics is a way of Christians deflecting from their suffering as well. And I think that there's a lot of commonality. And uh, there is a word in apologetics in the midst of suffering that uh, Christians can deliver to uh, their fellow human about hope and about uh, a real, you know, and looking at the prophets and that suffering is a common thing. You know, that book by Shusaku Endo that you did the Mockingbird podcast on the other day, silence, you know, sometimes there is no word. And so we have to look back to where God has already spoken. And certainly John the Baptist is Mm. one who, in Matthew 11, is experiencing, it seems like, silence. I mean, he's, he's hearing reports of Jesus, and yet it seems that he, he's in prison still. The pagans still rule Israel through the Herodian client despot. And it's interesting, Jesus' words back to him, they are allusions to, direct quotations from Isaiah 35. That's right. Yeah. But the thing that he doesn't quote, quote, he leaves out the stuff about your God coming with vengeance, mm. with recompense of God, he will come and save you. So I wonder if John is looking not just for the things Jesus is talking about, the blind receiving their sight, the lame, the lame walking, but I wonder if he's wondering, okay, when is the recompense? Mm. When will things be put to right? <laughs> Maybe the, the tough thing is that Jesus, it seems, doesn't come to bring the judgment, but to bear the judgment. Yeah, that's very much that's very much the truth, I think. And uh, and we see that here. I think this is another very powerful Advent illustration. Uh, John the Baptist, you know, he spent all of this time preaching and preparing the way. 
And uh, But what happens when the way doesn't work out the way you thought it should be? What if the way is different than what you were expecting? And uh, so many people in life have thought, you know, if my life should have worked out this way, God, where were you? Why didn't my life work out that way? You know, I was faithful, God. I thought I was doing your will. And, um, you know, my life didn't come this way. And, you know, and and it's into that that real questions are bubble up and uh, are you the one or should we expect another what real christian has never asked that question max Licata. <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah joel olstein joel that's Osteen, right yeah. good creflo dollar too but that is a real that is a real and i think this is you know where the rubber hits the road i think on one level with people in their congregation is is that there are a lot of folks that are like man i thought my life was going to be something else and are and i invested and and this is one of the problems i think with kind of um free will Christianity, if you will, and uh, a Christianity that puts a lot of emphasis on what you do as opposed to what's already been done for you, is that ultimately it kind it doesn't, it kind of, it totally puts God in your debt. And so it's into this that Jesus says, go back and tell John what you have witnessed. Yeah, and I think that you know, it's interesting is, is I think the Greek there is scandalazo, right? Blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. But it's not saying that when you hear the message of the free grace of Jesus, the friend of sinners, that, uh, oh, that's great. It's, I think what it means is everyone will be scandalized in some way because it's saying that you're not in control of your life, that your norms for reality are not the same as God's. And the, I heard Tim Keller say something great in a sermon once. He said, you know, every culture has problems with Jesus. The issue is to think is thinking that your pro- culture's problems with Jesus are Jesus' real problems. So everybody says, you know, in New York, everybody loves the John 8 Jesus, woman caught in adultery, non-judgmental Jesus. Je- you know, judge us not you be, I don't condemn you. But the John 14 Jesus, I'm the way, the truth. Whoa! He says, but you know, in, a- in places like Africa, traditional cultures, they would have no problem with the absolute truth Jesus. But how could a Jesus be so soft on mm-hmm. adultery? And cultures that are traditional and much more family-oriented than we are. So there'll, there'll always be something that's a rub, but I think that the grace comes in, not in, in the initial non-offense, but in the grace of having your offenses annihilated. Oh, that is great. I once heard a story about um, a young uh, pastor who had gone to uh, North Dakota to pastor a congregation of Norwegian pietists, and uh, he had gone out of seminary, gotten out of seminary, and he was a little bit radical. And so on the first Sunday, he served wine uh, during uh, Holy Communion, and the entire pietistic congregation went in uproar. Even the pietists who only went to church on Christmas and Easter showed up to the next all-parish meeting, and the young pastor prepared uh, to make his case that Jesus drank wine, and so therefore they should have wine at Holy Communion. And he did the Greek, and he said the Greek word is oinos, and uh, that means wine, and Jesus drank wine, and so shall we. And this little German lady in the back raised her hand, and the pastor called on her and said, yes. And she goes, Jesus drank wine? Yeah, and that is one of the things we don't like about Jesus. 
<laughs> I know nothing. I see nothing. So, but this uh, kind of uh, brings us to the end of uh, Advent 3. So maybe we should go get some coffee or something. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I interviewed um, Makato Fujimura uh, last week and in his book about Endo's novel Silence, which the film is coming out. Phil Yancey wrote the foreword. As I'm just thinking about John the Baptist, and it's easy to judge yeah. John the Baptist. You know, here he's sort of questioning, is, are you really the one I said you were? Yancey at the end of the foreword says this, the entire Bible can be seen, in fact, as a story of betrayal beginning with Adam and proceeding through the history of the Israelites, culminating in the cross. In an astonishing reversal, the Romans' cruelest execution device became the ubiquitous Christian symbol. At the cross, hiddenness, ambiguity, and strange beauty converge. Every one of Jesus' followers, from the first disciple down through history to the present day, knows the feeling of betrayal, sharp-edged gossip, the stab of envy, that colleague we humiliated, the racist comment that drew a laugh, a sudden and inexplicable cruelty, apologies to our children deserved but never made, a furtive fantasy, a stolen kiss, callousness toward another's misery, an addiction to it demeans or even destroys. In ways small and large, we too step on the fumier. Mm. Our only hope is the forgiving gaze of the betrayed savior, the still point of Endo's novel. It's the, the forgiving gaze of the betrayed Savior is the only hope for John the Baptist, for Israel, for us, and for the world. And our ultimate source of all joy. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is it new endeavor so we'd love to hear them you send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com thanks again for listening and have a great week